0: Well, Christmas season is upon us, um, and uh, I love Christmas. And I, if you if you would think of me as maybe like a, like a like a eight out of ten in regards to Christmas, my son is about a thousand. So he he's like super Christmas. He's Mister Christmas, and so every Christmas he just he just gets so excited, and on um, uh, leading up to Friday. So Friday, this the day after Thanksgiving, is traditionally the day, right? Where our family gets all the Christmas decorations out, and we get the tree up and we decorate it. And by the way, we we cannot we cannot get any more ornaments because there is no room. All the all the ones that the kids have made and everything is just jam packed, right? And then we we listen to Christmas music, we make homemade pizza, and then we watch a Christmas movie. That's, that's our deal. And my son wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he's ready. He's ready to get this day started. Uh, I, I, um, I love Christmas too. And as I was kind of you know, thinking and praying through you know, this Christmas season and then our time together and anticipating this day, this Friday that we spent decorating and all that stuff, I started thinking about the Christmas tree. Now, the Christmas tree in our house, you know, is a kind of like a centerpiece in our living room, right? We, we put it up. Ours is fake. Who has a real tree? Who does real trees? You guys are diehard, so proud of you, all right? So proud of you. And we used to do that, too. We used to, not my family, but like my, my mom and my dad and my brothers and all this stuff, we used to go out and cut down a tree and stuff. You know, looking back, I, I, I was thinking that that was like a beautiful moment until I remembered that we just argued the whole time, but whatever. So, we have a fake tree that we then pull down from the attic, and we put it up, and, and we put up that tree, and, you know, it, it looks beautiful, right? It has all these ornaments, all these decorations, so many ornaments that our kids have made. You know, we, we have uh, one that has a picture of my wife and I on the day that we got engaged. It's like our first Christmas ornament. I mean, these things are special, right? It's, and we look at it, and we're like, oh, the memories, and then you got the lights, right? And then the star, and the kids, every year they argue about whose turn it is to put the star up. And my wife and I, we have no idea who did it last year. One of these days, days we're going to wise up and actually write that down or something. But so they, they fight it out, and finally, you know, someone uh, wins and they put the star up. And, and we look back and we marvel at it, right? But what gets forgotten? What gets forgotten when we think about the Christmas tree? The stand. The stand. As a matter of fact, the stand gets covered, doesn't it? <laughs> we don't even want to see the stand, right? And so we put like a, some sort of you know drape over it or something to make it look pretty because we don't want to see that stand. Rather, we want to see everything else: the tree, the ornaments, the star. Presents, all that stuff, but the stand—that's pretty important. Uh, Did you know that the original patents for a Christmas tree stand was was uh, uh, put together and designed in 1867? Now I'm sure that they were around, you know, and used a lot before that. But the original U.S. patents—check this, check these images out. These are the these are the original U.S. patents for. Christmas tree stands. Does anybody have a stand that looks anything like that? You probably wouldn't raise your hand if you did. Um, These are interesting, right? Now, they look really different now, don't they? Look at what they look like now. That's quite a striking contrast, right? Now, obviously, this isn't for an artificial tree for our tree, for instance, it's just the, these metal rods that kind of stand out or whatever. But this would be for a real tree. You know, you put it in there, you tighten it all up, and, and then you put the water in, and all that stuff, and, and uh, they stand. You see, what's interesting about the stand is if we didn't have a stand, what would it do? It would fall over, right? It would fall down. Meaning that all the ornaments, right? All the work, all the effort that you go into making that tree look as beautiful as it does wouldn't matter, would it? Because if you didn't have a stand, it would just be lying on the ground. So the stand then, the Christmas tree stand, becomes then the basis on which all else is built on. Without the stand, it doesn't matter the ornaments. It doesn't matter the lights. It doesn't matter the star. It doesn't even matter about the tree because it would just fall down. Such is the case with the, the birth of Jesus. Now, we look at... There wasn't a guitar in the nativity scene. I'm just going put to that, put that over there. And we look at the, the cradle, right? We look at the, the manger, and we consider this and we envision baby Jesus all you know swaddled up and you know, you know all that stuff, right? And we think, oh Christmas, right? But what we fail to remember is that the manger, the cradle, the birth of Jesus is actually the foundation on which all else is built. Meaning that that when we when we start to deconstruct the the cradle we begin to realize how it is that everything else is built upon it and so we have this stand We have this Christmas tree stand here now that begins to lay a foundation on which all else is built. And that's what we're going to do over the course of this series, is we're going to begin to unpack what it is and how it is that we get from the cradle to the cross. And today what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to lay a foundation that helps us understand that without the birth of Jesus, without what that means, without the realization that God became flesh, that then this right here isn't possible. That without the birth of Jesus, without God becoming flesh and what that means and what those implications are, then this is just a good man dying for a good cause. By looking at the stand on which all else is built on. All right? So with that, we're going to look at a paradox. What's a paradox? Paradox. Well, a paradox is a situation or person or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. So spiritually speaking, the function of a paradox is to force human minds beyond the natural and to instead look at what is supernatural. Supernatural. So what is this paradox that we're we're talking about here today? We're talking about that when God became flesh, that when when God became the incarnate Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus then became 100% God and 100% man. That's the paradox. Because how in the world could those two things be in one? So what I want to do here in the the minutes that we have is to to look at the evidence, the evidence of how Jesus could be 100% God, the implications of that, and then the evidence of how Jesus was 100% human and the implications of that, and then what are the implications of those things being in one person. So Jesus was 100% God. What evidence do we have of that? I mean, it's one thing to say it, but what evidence do we have? Well, let's look at the biblical evidence. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus, he says, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus proclaimed his infiniteness. Jesus also claimed to be one with the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 30. To 33, he says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus also claimed that our eternity relied solely on Him. That our eternity and our eternal uh, assurance reside solely on the person of Jesus. And he says this in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And then Jesus is said then to be the creator of all things. That's definitely a God thing, right? Jesus is said to be the creator of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For in him, for in Jesus, all things were created. So what are the implications of this? I mean, right, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to look at the evidence, the biblical evidence. But then what are the implications? What does that mean then for you and I? but Jesus being 100% God. Well, one implication is that we can truly know God. That is so cool. Think about it. If you want to know the power of God, if you want to know the hope of God, if you want to know the love of God, then you need not look any further than who? Jesus. It's right there. Jesus being 100% God clearly shows us and reveals to us the hope and the love and the power that is God's. So we can truly know God. Another implication is that God and humanity were actually reunited at Jesus' birth. Now when God created the heavens and the earth, and he created Adam and Eve, and everything was perfect, everything was ideal, before sin entered into the world, that relationship was solid between God and humanity. Then because of sin, that relationship was, was divided. There was then this chasm between God and humanity, which required that Jesus Christ die on the cross and then defeat death and rise from the dead. But even before that happened, God and humanity were actually reunited at Jesus' birth, in that Jesus, being 100% God, was also 100% man. And it's important to, to, to know in saying this that the initiative, the initiative to reunite God and humanity, that didn't come from man, it came from God. Because man couldn't become God. Man can't become God. Only God could become man. So we can truly know God. And that God and humanity were re- reunited at Jesus' birth. And then another implication, and this is so important, especially during Christmas, because we, we oftentimes forget this part of Jesus because we see Him during the Christmas season as just this, this, this drooly-mouthed baby boy. But if Jesus is 100% God, then He is deserving of our worship. Just as much as the Father is because He's God. He is deserving of our praise. He is deserving of our adoration. So with the paradox of of Jesus being 100% God, the other aspect of that then is that He was 100% human. Okay, well, what evidence do we have of that? Was it just this this godly deity that hovered around the earth for 33 years? Or was he, in fact, 100% human? How do we we know this? Well, let's look at some of the biblical evidence. In Matthew 4-2, we see that Jesus experienced hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Where it says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, no duh that's it's that a joke in um, <laughs> Jesus suffered and died in John chapter 19 verse 33 through 34 but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead they did not break his legs instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water it's also said that Jesus could be seen he could be heard he could be touched in 1st 1 John 1:1 1, 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then Jesus also evidence the emotional and intellectual qualities of being a human being very similar to what you and I experience and we talked a little bit about this over the last series in Matthew twenty-six thirty-seven, it says that he took Peter and the sons and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled that sounds very much like a human condition so Jesus being 100% God and then 100% human, what are the implications then of him being 100% human, 100% man? Why does that matter? Well, one of the things, one of the implications is that Jesus then becomes the embodiment of true humanity. There are a lot of, of men and women in my, my life that I look up to, that inspire me, that I think are just amazing Men and women of God. One of which is Don Mortensen. I, I think Don Mortensen, our pastor, is absolutely incredible. And if you've ever gotten to know him, you definitely know the same. 20 bucks after the service. Right? No, it's so true. But he is not, he is not the embodiment of true humanity. The embodiment of true humanity meaning God's ideal for humans, is Jesus. So if you want to base your life off of someone, if you want to wonder how it is that you can and should live your life for God, then look no further than who? Jesus. One, one obli- uh, implication then is that he is the embodiment of true humanity. Another implication is that we can know we can know that God's ideal human nature is good. We get this kind of twisted and distorted because sin twists and distorts. But that human nature in and of itself, as God created it, is good. But because of sin, human nature has been twisted and distorted. But that Jesus lived out the ideal human nature. That is, that he lived physically, he lived emotionally, he lived mentally, and he lived spiritually. And that all of that was a part of God's ideal for human nature. And that God's ideal for human nature is good. And then I love this part. Another implication of, how, of that Jesus was 100% human is that God is not entirely transcendent. What does that mean? That means that God is not just so completely out there and beyond our reach. That God himself, the creator of all things, actually dwelt among us. Meaning that God took residence in one of these. It looked a lot better than this, but it was one of these. And all that one of these comes with. Why wouldn't we think that God would want to? He does want to be involved in our day to day lives now. He lived amongst us for 33 years. And he still wants to be with us today. So the paradox of Jesus being 100% God, 100% man, how there's evidence of both of those and implications in, in regards to both. But then you consider Jesus then, okay, right, having two natures in one. So Jesus had two natures in one. His God nature and his human nature. And what are the implications of this? And this is important to understand because we, we tend to forget this. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, God becoming the person of Jesus, that was an addition of His humanity, not a, subtract, a subtraction of His divinity. That was an addition of of his humanity we get that confused sometimes because we look at a passage like philippians chapter 2 and i've shared this passage many times before because i love it so much but specifically in verse 7 where it says that jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness now these verses don't say they don't say that jesus stopped being fully divine. And Paul even addresses this later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. His complete deity existed in the human form of Jesus. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, where it says that he made himself nothing, that's not Paul referring to what Jesus emptied himself of, He's not saying that Jesus emptied himself of his deity for 33 years. Rather, he's saying how Jesus emptied himself. And this is really important because it begins to reshape our perspective of the Christmas season. Usain Bolt, uh, probably fastest sprinter of all time. I think, is he the fastest human being right now? Probably, maybe. Incredibly, definitely nobody in this room could beat him in a foot race, right? He's super fast. But imagine if Usain Bolt came up to the starting line of a 100-meter race, and he instead was tied up with another person with his legs going to run a three-legged race. In that moment, Usain Bolt still has all the capability, all the ability to be able to be the fastest human ever to have run. But now his conditions have limited his ability. But all Usain Bolt would have to do is to bend down and to loosen that tie, undo it, and he would be able to realize his full ability. That's what Jesus did. Jesus willingly voluntarily limited his ability and all he had to do at any moment was to bend down and to undo that tie and his full ability would be realized why is that important because when we when we understand that truth then his work here becomes even that much more beautiful Knowing that at any moment He could have loosened that tie. That at any moment His deity could have been fully realized and exercised. Because He had the ability to. But He voluntarily chose to limit Himself. Why? Why? When we consider Christmas... And as we step into this Christmas season, we, we oftentimes, we, we get to this point and we think, I know I do this, we think this year it's going to be different, right? This year I'm going to seize every day and I'm going to do it a different way. And then December 26 hits and we wake up and we're like, holy cow, where did that go? Right? Well, this year I want to set us off on the right foot december 1st this is december 1st we got 25 days to reshape and rethink how it is that we approach the christmas season let's stop let's stop oohing and eyeing over a baby boy lying in a manger and understand that that as mary was holding that little baby that at the very same time that little baby was then holding the universe in his. We're not not remembering a baby boy during Christmas. We're not remembering a good story and singing songs like Away in the Manger and thinking about how precious and beautiful and silent that night was. Rather, when we look at that baby boy, we're seeing the foundation on which all else was built on. Because that baby boy was God Himself. The Creator of all things who came to us because we could not go to Him. And that should should totally revolutionize how it is that we see Christmas. It's the why. It's the why He came that we need to focus on. It wasn't for that moment. It was for that. And so right now we have the... The privilege and the opportunity to remember that great sacrifice that Christ became for us on the cross. To think and to pray and to invite Him to speak to us so that we can go into this Christmas season remembering why it is that we even celebrate this in the first place. Let's, yes, experience the joy of this season. Let's enjoy being together, singing the carols, eating the cookies. I love eating the cookies. But let's not ever let that Trump what it is that this is all about in the first place. to say it. And it's sad it's cliche to say it this way because it's so true and there's really no better way of saying it. Jesus is the reason for the season. There's no, way about it that's i mean that's he is the reason why it is that we take this time that we celebrate but it's not because of that moment it's because of that one but that moment on the cross was only possible because god himself became flesh and dwelt among us so I want to invite these servers forward and right now we're going to remember the sacrifice that Christ became for us on the cross. And if, if you're not a regular attender here, if you don't consider this, this uh, church your home, that's fine. We hope that someday soon you would. But if you're a believer, if you've decided to follow Jesus and make him the leader of your life, the Bible says you are saved and then you are part of the family of God. You're a child of the Almighty God, and because of that, we invite you to join us, please, in this time of communion. We're going to pass these elements out together, and then just in a little bit, we will pray and then receive them together.